We're getting closer and closer to the end of Psalms. I can almost see it from here. We're going to be in 142 and 143 today. Both of these are Psalms of David. And the title of Psalm 142 is You Are My Refuge, and it says it's a mascal of David when he was in the cave of prayer. Now, it's been a while since we brought up what is a mascal, which is this psalm. And what a mascal is, is generally thought of as a musical term. And it refers to how the psalm was performed or how the psalm was recited. That's about all we can go. We, we can't say, oh, it was this way. We don't have any re- <laughs> recordings, obviously. It would be nice if we did, but it's a musical type of a term. Bruce, what's the spelling? M-A-S-K-I-L. Okay, thanks. Now, it's clear in reading through the psalm that David was in distress. He starts out, he says, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I tell my trouble before him. My spirit faints within me. Verse 4, no refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. That's not a very good uh, outlook. I mean, he's in a tough spot. As they say in the old brother whore out there, we're in a tough spot. And that's where David was. I plead for mercy. I tell my trouble before him. My spirit faints within me. No one cares for my soul. And it says in 142, it says, David penned this while he was in the cave. Now the cave, which cave? Possible it was the Adullam cave. Probable it was that cave. That's mentioned in Second in 1 Samuel 22. Now it may have been a cave in En Gedi. In 1 Samuel 24, where David was hiding, and in that cave he spared Saul's life um, when he had a chance to kill him. And it could have been another cave that we don't really know about. But most place this in the cave at Adullam, as mentioned in 1 Samuel 22. But wherever and whenever it was, we clearly see David's state of mind. And the reason... Adullam fits is it kind of fits the life of David. And in 2 Samuel 22, David's abilities in military service had made Saul extremely jealous. And David was forced to flee from the sort of court of Saul. Saul had tried to kill him. And so he went to Ahimelech. You might remember this story about a year ago or a year and a half ago when we went through it. Ahimelech was a priest at Nob who provided David with food and he also provided him with the sword of Goliath. And Saul pursued him and in that pursuit Saul had Doeg murder the priests who had assisted David. Then David went west to Gath which was a Philistine city That didn't work out for very long. And so he went into the wilderness and hid in the cave at Adullam. Now eventually his brothers and others who were distressed joined him there. And these became the 
the core of Dave's mighty army is 400 mighty men. But this was before that happened. George Horn, who lived in the 1700s, wrote this. He said, The state of David in the cave of Adullam was a state of utter destitution. Persecuted by his own countrymen, which includes Saul, dismissed by Achish, and yet not joined by his own relations or any other attendants, he took refuge in the cave and was there alone. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine the, you know, going through that. But David did. And Derek Kidner wrote this. He said, in it, or in this psalm, the strain of being hated and hunted is almost too much. And then I like this last quote. And faith is at full stretch. Faith is at full stretch. But we will see at the end of the psalm that David maintains his hope and trust in the Lord. In closing the psalm with the words, you will deal bountifully with me. That's in verse 7. So the first thing we have in this psalm is David's plea, which is verses 1 and 2. He says, With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. Now these two verses are another example of the use of parallelism in Hebrew poetry. We see that all the time. And each of the verses contain very similar, if not the same, message. And this form of parallelism in this poetry reinforces the fervency of the prayer of David. And praying fervently is a very acceptable way of approaching God. But we don't need to get, and we need to be careful, we don't get in the mindset that fervency gets more of God's attention. And therefore, more likely an answer to come like we want. It's easy to think that way. Years ago, I was visiting a church where in the Sunday school class, prayer requests were sought. And one dear woman stood up and told about a family member that had been diagnosed with a very serious disease. It may have been cancer, I don't remember. But she was obviously very concerned and emotionally upset about it. And I can remember her telling about it, and then she said something like this. This is not an exact quote, but it's close. Now, if we can all pray real hard for the person and they said his name, for God to heal her, then she can be healed. And it just stuck in my craw. Pray real hard. We kind of think that way sometimes. I'm not faulting her. I'm faulting us, in a sense, in our understanding of prayer. The repetition here that, that is used is not to pray real hard so that God will hear because God hears the prayers of his, sin, of, of his saints. 
The repetition here shows the fervency of the one praying. Totally dependent upon God. You know, James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now remember the King James says, The prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So if we want to have effective prayer, first of all, we have to have our relationship with God right and correct. Praying hard. So what? The other thing we need to note about this, and this is not a criticism of David by any means, it's far easier to turn to the Lord in times of trouble than in times of ease, isn't it? I mean, just think back to 9-11 and how people would say prayers a lot. Remember this guy just this last year, I can't remember his name, the, the football player for Buffalo who collapsed and died on the field? Hamlin. Hamlin, yeah. And um, you had people in sporting uh, TV shows actually praying on the camera. Why? Because it was, it was tough times. You don't see them praying when things are good. Right? Because that's our nature to some degree. Spurgeon had an interesting take on this, and I gave you the quote in your notes. said, Caves make good closets for prayer. Their gloom and solitude are helpful to the exercise of devotion. And then he makes this statement. Had David prayed as much in his palace as he did in his cave, he might never have fallen into the act which brought such misery upon his later days. Yeah. I thought that was a pretty good quote. And we got to be careful. We're just, I, uh, David, you shouldn't have done that. No, we need to apply that to ourselves. Now the word translated complaint, verse 2, I pour out, pour out my complaint before him, could be stated, my troubles, or my, my troubled thoughts. It's a little different than we probably, or you might have thought of it initially, when you go to the complaint department, right? As we see in the next verse, the outpouring of complaint is not to tell God what he does not know it's for the complainer's relief it's not for God's information God knew the state of David so he was telling him his troubles he was telling him his thoughts and he was very open to it he very he he would speak very openly to God and we can do that Then we see, starting in verse 3, David's plight. It says, When my spirit faints within me, you know the way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see, there is no one who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. So starting with verse 3, after David tells of his state, he begins to speak about the troubles he is facing. 
But in this description, notice he does not lose sight that God knows his way. Verse 3, when my spirit faints within me, you know my way. And then in verse 4, David asks God to look to the right and see. He knows that God is aware of his circumstances. And while he may be alone, totally alone, God is with him. This is a great promise to believers, isn't it? That God is with us, no matter how alone we may be. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 says this. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. That's a, something we could all take to heart. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now it's interesting that quote, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Quotes from Psalm 118, verse 6. There's so much of the Old Testament and the Psalms are quoted in the New Testament. And this is just one other example. Now, contrast that to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Jesus said this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You know, if there is a sadder statement or a sadder sentence in Scripture than this one, you'd have to look really hard and really long to find it. I mean, that is just sobering. We did so many mighty works in your name. We prophesied. We cast out demons. I never knew you. That's loneliness. Now, verse 3 shows that the path is dangerous. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. It's full, with, full of traps and snares. And verse 4, again, shows that there is no others with him. But this is David's confidence in the Lord. Thinking about this, many times it is better to understand that we do not have the power in ourselves to get ourselves out of circumstances. Because when we think we have the power, what do we do? We try to do it ourselves. Don't we? We rely on ourselves. We do not turn to God because, well, I don't need him now because I, I can handle this. I got this. No, we need to have this attitude on everything. George Horns, who wrote almost 300 years ago, wrote this. Such should be at all times the confidence of believers in the wisdom, the power, 
in the goodness of God, even when human prudence has done its utmost and is at its wit's end. 300 years ago, they had the same issues. Now, compare that to the prevailing thought of today. This, I got this quote. They said they don't know who made this quote. Self-confidence is a superpower. Once you start believing in yourself, magic starts happening. Oh, wow. Then there's this other one. We are all stars and we deserve to twinkle. (laughs) I bet you'd never guess who said that. If I gave you a hundred, if I give you a thousand tries. Marilyn Monroe. And then this other guy, I don't know him, his name is Brian Tracy, said, every situation is a positive situation if viewed as an opportunity for growth and self-mastery. Let's have confidence in ourselves. We can be stars. Self-confidence is a superpower. Just the opposite. But we are told this all the time. I always get a kick out of these um, coaches for the most part. You can be whatever you want to be. I can tell you right now, none of us in this room, even if we went back to where we were 15 years old, could play in the NBA. Wouldn't happen. I don't care how much you think it could. You can't be whatever you want to be. You can you can do a lot. You can do more than what maybe you thought you could, but you can't be what you want to be. Yeah, I got off on a rabbit trail. I'll come back. The next thing we see is David's trust in verses five and six. He knows he has no power that he needs help, and he turns to God. And we see this in verse 5. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. So in this section, David shows his confidence in God regardless of his circumstances. This is the message that began Psalm one or Psalm 46, where it says, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. God is our refuge. And David understood that. God is his refuge. Now it's interesting. God says, you are my refuge in verse 5. My portion in the land of the living. He is not contradicting what he said in verse 4. Look to the right and see there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. This is not a contradiction. This compares men to God. There were no men that were coming out to help him. God is a far better refuge 
because only God can keep us from divine wrath and judgment. Charles Wesley wrote this, Other refuge I have none hangs my helpless soul on thee. And there are the starting words, then there's the starting words from a hymn that you all probably know, Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, talking about Christ, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. God is our refuge. The next thing David declares is that God is his portion in the land of the living. He is enough. (coughs) On this, Spurgeon wrote this. It is easy to parade bravely when we dwell at ease, but to speak confidently in affliction, but to speak confidently in affliction is quite another matter. Now, how many of you knew what parade means? I'd never heard that word. What was parade again? P-R-A-T-E. I looked it up. When you look a lot of, at a lot of Spurgeon quotes, he had a much bigger vocabulary than me and probably all of us. Parade is to talk long and idly. You know, let's get together and have coffee and we're going to discuss... Whatever. Is that where comes from? What? Is that where comes from? Probably. So he said it's easy to talk long and idly in a brave manner when we dwell at ease. Real easy to. But to speak confidently in affliction is quite another matter. And David is speaking confidently in affliction. You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. David understands his strength is nothing, and his strength is God's strength. That's the only place he will get it. He shows insight in humility in asking God to save. This applies to the state David was in, But there's a parallel in our spiritual lives as well. We need a Savior. We need one who can, as it says in verse 6, deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. We, like David, need to understand the limits of our strength and seek the Lord. Isaiah 55 talks about this. Isaiah 55 says, this is some of the, uh, I think, verse 1, 3, and 6. It says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Verse 3, Incline your ear, come to me, here that your soul may live. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And then we have David's prospects starting in verse, or in totally in verse 7. The reason for the deliverance is to bring glory to God. It says, bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. He didn't say bring me out of prison so that I can have it really easy and live the good life. 
and retire with a house on the hill and all the saint, all the all the servants I want, and I can have a life of ease. No, deliver me that I can praise and thank you. The righteous will surround me, for you deal bountifully with me. There's also a confidence that God will deal bountifully with him. This is not a hope so type of a statement. God will do this. He says, so you might deal bountifully with me. He says, you will deal bountifully with me. You know, we may feel, and probably all of us have, similar to David from time to time, maybe not to this length because we didn't have Saul and his armies pursuing us and we were not literally in a cave. But there's time that we're alone and we're in distress. Boyce points out, talking about this, on how alone did Jesus feel when he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We'll never understand that level of abandonment. Ever. But though, but through this, and thinking about what Jesus suffered for us, we have that great promise of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Since then, we have a great high priest, Christ, who has passed through heavens, through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is exactly what David was doing back in Psalm 142. So now if we go back and look at this whole psalm, we read it from the first. What's it tell us? With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before Him. I tell my trouble before Him. When my spirit faints within me, you know the way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is one who takes notice of me. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me. For you will deal bountifully with me. Psalm 142. So now we get to go to Psalm 143. Another Psalm of David. It begins in verse 1 with the prayer for mercy. And remind you a little bit of what we just read 
Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. You know, mercy is something we all need. And we know that. But you don't hear very many prayers asking God for mercy. There's prayers abound for God's healing or for God's provision or guidance and the like. But I, you know, kind of tried to go back and remember, God, give me mercy. I don't know if I've heard that asked too often. So I got to ask, I got to ask myself, what's a good definition of mercy? Well, a couple that I have read are this. Benevolent goodness or compassion to those in distress. Another one is forgiveness or withholding judgment. Another one, it's a little longer, it says this. In common usage, mercy and grace are often used interchangeably. They do not mean the same thing, but they are integrally related and may be considered two sides of the same coin in salvation. When God saves a person, he extends both mercy and grace. Mercy is forgiving the sinner and withholding the punishment that is justly deserved. Grace does not show one without the other. In Christ, believers experience both mercy and grace. But David is praying for mercy. Then, why do we need mercy? Verse 2. Enter not into judgment with your servants, servant, for no one is no one living is righteous before you. Now verse 2 is another verse. It's not quite as blunt or bold as some other examples that show that no one can stand before a righteous God. We see this in Psalm 14, 1 to 3. We see it, and we can go to a couple of those. I think we have time to do that. If someone wants to look up Psalm 14, 1 to 3, while someone's doing that, someone else can look up Isaiah 64, verse 6. Someone else, Jeremiah 17, 9. Then Romans 3, 10. 11 and 23. I've got Psalm 14. Okay, read Psalm 14. Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed an abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is are any who understand who seek after God they have all turned aside together they have become corrupt there is no one who does good nor even one not even one and that's the first three how many did you that's want? good that's okay. that's all we need to go Jeremiah or Isaiah 64 6 does someone have that 
But we are all as unclean thing, and our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans 3, 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Uh, can you go to verse 11 too? Yeah, no one understands. No one seeks for God. Let's see. 23. Yep. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then there's Ephesians 4, 17 and 19. Can I read that one? Or? Sure. Okay, Ephesians 4, 17 and 19. So, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you will walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they have, been, oh, and they having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Boy, man's a good guy, isn't he? But this is another verse. No one living is righteous before you. It's not as blunt, but it's still just as true. So the plea is not for the judgment deserved but for mercy, unmerited favor. You know, we like to think that we're okay. I know there was a book out years ago, I'm okay, you're okay. It was in the 70s, I think. And we covered this recently just in Psalm 140. All these quotes of the goodness of man, and I thought about going there again, but we did that just last week. You know, David, while he is considered a great king, you go to Israel and say, who is your great king? Oh, David, David. I mean, he just, he's at the top, right? He was called a man after God's own heart. But yet he is well aware of his unrighteousness before God. And he pleaded that God exercise mercy, not judgment. As we read this verse, and those other verses too, but this verse in Psalm 143, we can better appreciate the promise of 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The only way to be righteous before God is if God is the one doing the cleansing. Well, verse 10 is amazing. Uh, first John? Uh-huh. Well, go ahead and say it. And if we say we have no, not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. 
I don't know about you, but I saw, oh, several months ago, a very famous televangelist preacher say, I have, or I do not sin. Or I have not sinned. No Joyce you have. You just said it right then. <laughs> but the arrogance. Whew. That's another topic. We won't go down there. So next we see David's present conditions in verse 3 and 4. For the enemy has pursued, pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. So in these verses... These two verses, David describes what he is feeling. He felt crushed in verse 3. He felt that he lived in darkness like those who were dead. He felt his spirit faints within him. Spurgeon wrote of this, he said, He felt perplexed and overturned, lonely and afflicted. He was a man of thought and feeling and suffered both in spirit and in, suffered both in, spirit and in heart from the undeserved and unprovoked hostility of his persecutors. Remember, the people that were persecuting him, they weren't righteous. Was Saul righteous and trying to kill him? I know. And you can go on with other examples. And then it says, his heart was appalled. The King James word is desolate. And some commentators compare this to what Jesus may have felt, I use the word may, but there's some parallels here for sure, that Jesus may have felt just before his, his, his betrayal and his crucifixion. And this has some merit from what we read in Matthew 26, 36 to 39, where we read this. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go and pray. Then in verse 7, He began to be sorrowful and troubled. I think that's woefully understated there. I think he was incredibly troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Verse 39, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. We will never understand how troubled he was. Fell on his face. You know, I've read that before, but I kind of always skipped over that, fell on his face and prayed. I just didn't. Mm. Oh, yeah. And this is how David felt. Crushed. Living in darkness like those who were dead. Spirit fates with him in, and his, he was desolate. And this is what Christ experienced right before his arrest and crucifixion. This was before he was arrested. Then we see in verse 5. What will David do? He will remember. 
He will mediate, or meditate, meditate. He will ponder and he will stretch on what God has done in verses 5 and 6. I, will rem- I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land, Selah. Now, well, it is always a good idea to remember what God has done throughout history and then meditate on everything he has done. Even to ponder on it. Now, I looked up ponder. Just want to make sure I understood what ponder meant. Because we use it sometimes. According to Merriam-Webster, ponder is to reflect on, especially quietly, soberly, and deeply. Is it a form of meditation? Oh, no. It's different. Okay. You know, you reflect on it, but you're... Yeah, especially quietly, soberly, and deeply. You're just really, really mulling it over. It's always a good idea to do that. But the benefits of doing those increases when my spirit faints within me and my heart within me is appalled. When we get way down and we feel that way, Remember what God has done throughout history. Meditate on all that God has done. Ponder the work of God's hands. Doing these three things, remember, meditate, and ponder about all that God has done will lift our spirit. It will fill us with a greater appreciation for God and for who he is and for what he has done. And I would suggest, well, how do we do that? Well, I would suggest the best way to do it is to go to the Bible. Read it, not fast, slowly, but with your mind fully engaged. And I know about you, but when I read stuff, sometimes my mind isn't fully engaged. Well, I, you know, I read it, oh, I better read that sentence again. The other day I was reading a book, and it was not an easy book. I had to have my dictionary out to look up all these words because I'd never heard of them before. And uh, he made Spurgeon look like a, he has <laughs> a small vocabulary. But anyway, I read it, and I read it again, and then I went back, and finally I said, i got to come back when my mind isn't going like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And, uh, but... When we open the Bible, open it with no hurry, you know, to sit there and to think through what God is telling us, what God has done, and then pray a prayer of thanks for the Word of God and the teaching the Spirit will give you. And as we do that, God will work in our life and our spirit to greatly encourage us by what God has revealed to us. The promise in Matthew eleven twenty eight is very true, where Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. One thing to note as you do this is what H.C. Leopold explained. He said this, The sacred scriptures list a vast array of mighty works that God did, works of power and deeds of deliverance. Upon these the psalmist meditated and mused. This is an effective way of getting one's bearings. And then he says this, which I loved. God does not change. The next thing we read in verse 6 is, I stretched out my hands to you, my soul thirsts for you like a parched land. As I read this verse, this image came to my mind of hungry people. I mean, really hungry people extending their arms and hands as far as they can to receive food from those who are handing it out. You don't, you don't just sit there and go, oh, give it to me. You're reaching as far as you possibly can. You're not reaching half-heartedly or casually. You're reaching as far as possible to receive what the benefactor was providing. Why? Those people desperately need, desperately need what was being handed out. So do we. Our hands, our heart should extend to receive what the Lord has given to us as far as we can reach to get it. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but it was just a good image that I had. That, that, yeah, that's what we need to do. And then it says, my soul thirsts for you like parched land. You know, I think David knew what parched land looked like. Um, when you look at areas of the wilderness of Judah, rainfall can be very sparse. I read that on the eastern slopes of the Judean wilderness... They receive annually 47 millimeters of rain. And now you're going, well, I don't know what a millimeter is. 1.85 inches a year. A year. So I'd say, imagine that about more than half of that probably evaporated the minute it hit the ground. Right? So David would know what a parched land looked like. My stretched out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Should we be any different? I don't think so. Oh, I thought I was going to sneeze. <laughs> I did. I knew it was coming. Sorry about that on the tape. <laughs> the next thing we see is pray, that he prays for things that only God can give. Verse 7. Answer me quickly, O Lord, my spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. 
I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Here, David asks God's, for God's revelation in God's direction. He knows that he is helpless without either of those. And the direction that God will provide would be deliverance from his enemies. He's also asked to be taught by the Lord. Verse 10, teach me to do your will for you are my God. You know, sometimes all we are looking for is a way out from our enemies. And we leave the teaching by the Lord aspect out. I want out of my troubles. I've talked to biblical counselors specifically about this about those who come to them for help, let's say marital help. And one thing they have indicated to me is this. Those who come to them really want their situation to be resolved. They really do. But sadly, many, or I could even say most, do not want to be taught by Scripture, be taught by Scripture or by the Lord, what they individually need to do to resolve the issues. Consequently, many, and it's way more than half, I don't know the numbers, leave without improvement because of the lack of the attitude that's found in verse 10. Teach me to do your will. For you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. And we've got to be careful. We just don't say, oh, those people, they should know better. We should know better. I should know better. I need to be taught by the Lord. You need to be taught by the Lord. We all need to be taught by the Lord. Boyce makes this point in his commentary. He said this, We want God to give us pointers as long as we have the final word as to whether we will take God's advice but we do not ask for the ability to actually do what God commands he nailed it let's be like David teach me to do your will for you are my God let your good spirit lead me on level ground we don't want pointers from God as long as we get the final boat He's given us pointers. We need to do it. And then in verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies. And you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul, for I am your servant. David turns again to focus on his enemies. Notice the why that begins the section. The why is critical here. For your name's sake. We need to make sure that when we pray for something, it's needed for his name's sake. And God knows that if we're kind of using that for a smoke screen, 
Yeah, we can say the words. He knows our heart. God knows if we're really more concerned about our own welfare than His. But that's a mindset that we need to pray that we get God's namesake first. We've said this before, you know, yeah, I would love for the rapture to take place this afternoon, 2.30, maybe 2.25, right? But I got to make sure the dog's food is <laughs> but, but how much of that is so I can get out of a situation that's uncomfortable for me? We should want God's kingdom to come right now so God would be glorified for his namesake. It's so hard for us to get that, get that right. And David does it here. For your name's sake, O oh Lord. It's hard to put someone else than ourselves first on the priority list, isn't it? <clears throat> but it's the only way to live. Recall the words of Paul in Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And then there's Colossians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Good verses to read and do that pondering on and the remembering on. And then the psalm closes with the statement by David, that I want to be a statement about me and hopefully you want it to be a statement about you. It's very easy to say, but it needs to be backed by our attitudes and our actions. For I am your servant. I think we need to pray for each other that we would become the servant of God for his namesake. So now let's go back and look at all 12 verses together of Psalm 142. If I can find it. 143, excuse me. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore my spirit faints within me. My heart is within me is appalled. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder your work the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Selah. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me from my enemies. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. 
In your righteousness bring my soul out of trouble. In your steadfast love you will cut off my enemies, and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul. For I am your servant. Amen. Let's pray.